0: Rick Warren once said, you were made by God and for God. And until you understand that, life will never make sense. The truth is, we all have our own ideas about God, don't we? What he's like, how he thinks, what he requires of us, and so on. And of course, when it comes to what we think about God, we all think we're right. We do, don't we? I mean, we all believe that what we think about God is right. Otherwise, we'd think differently. And yet, as Christians, uh, we don't all think the same things about God. In some cases, not even close. Well, then how can we all be right? I and mean, Which one of us has it all figured out? And, of course, it's an easy answer. We're not all right about God all the time. Okay, Not one of us is right about everything we think about God, because not one of us has yet been perfected, which means not one of us can perfectly or completely separate our flawed humanness, right? Our own humanity and human experience and all the errors in our thinking and feeling that comes along with it from how we think about God. And yet at the same time, there's nothing more formative in our walk with Christ than how we view him. Right? Because how we view Him is how we reflect Him. A.W. Tozer said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And therein lies the dilemma for every follower of Christ. There's nothing more important about us than how we view God, and yet at the same time, not one of us has a perfectly accurate view of Him. And so what happens is we tend to fill in the gaps with our own thoughts and ideas and preferences. It's our nature. The truth is some of what professing Christians believe about God is often a reflection of what they believe about themselves. There's a a tendency for us to project our own image onto God. And if we're not honest with ourselves about that, our perception of God will be based more on what we want him to be like than on what he is actually like, right? And then what we reflect to the world then looks more like us. And less like him. And so, for instance, uh, if you're an angry person, there's a natural tendency to view God as being angry. If you struggle with feelings of helplessness, you will often perceive God as being unable to help you. Okay, look, if you're morally liberal, you will tend to view God as being morally liberal, while those who are more morally conservative tend to see God as more morally conservative. And that's the image of God that we reflect then to the rest of the world. And so, Uh, can you see how important it is that our lives are a true reflection of who God really is and not so much who we would like for Him to be, right? And, of course, the problem is, if we're being honest, we don't always like what we see when we look at God. When we read passages of Scripture like the one we'll be studying today and especially next week, we don't always like what we see. And so we think to ourselves, well, God would never be like that. Because I don't don't think I would ever be like that. I would never do that. So surely there's a misunderstanding or a misinterpretation of what this passage says about God. And so instead of believing what it says about him, we tend to believe our own version of what it says about him. And look, the, the danger in viewing God in light of who you are rather than viewing yourself in light of who he is. The danger is that Christians sometimes behave as if God was created in our image and exists to serve us. Even though his word clearly teaches that we were created in his image and we exist to serve him. Because he is in fact, you understand, he's an uncreated, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful, undefinable, and uncontrollable God. When Peter was preaching to the crowds in Jerusalem, he said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.38. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of the living God living inside of you, but that doesn't mean you control the Holy Spirit. Right? He doesn't follow your leading. No, you're supposed to follow His leading, The Holy Spirit isn't a genie in a bottle who's there to answer our beck and call, and yet that's exactly how we treat him much of the time. We expect him to do what we want, when we want it, and then when he doesn't comply, we wonder why he isn't with us. Well, of course, it's not that he isn't with you, because God is always with you if you're a believer and follower of Christ. Look, when God doesn't do what you want him to do, when you want him to do it, that doesn't mean he's not with you. It simply means he's not controlled by you. Which leads us to a far bigger and more important question. Are you willing to follow a God you cannot control? Because I'll just tell you, most people aren't. Are you willing to follow a God you cannot fully explain or fit into your own theological box? Because most people aren't. Which is why, by the way, we have so many theological boxes and so many false teachings about Jesus because we want so desperately to make the terrifyingly powerful, eternally existent, infinitely knowing creator of the universe. We wanna make him a tame, explainable, controllable, well-behaved God that we can call on to do what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. We like the idea of the power and presence of God in our lives, but we want it on our terms. We believe that God is sovereign often while rejecting his sovereignty in our own lives and then we wonder why we're not getting what we want. Listen, sometimes the greatest evidence of God working in your life is you not getting the version of God you wish you had working in your life. Okay, the spirit of God is inside of us which means through Christ we now have unfettered access to God. We have the freedom to seek him and his leading and his will for every situation we face in life which he cares about by the way more than we do. He cares deeply about every moment of your life more than you do. And so when you're facing, for instance, the most difficult circumstances of your life, when you're under the most pressure, you better believe God has something to say about that. He absolutely has a direction for you to follow and answer to that question, a way through those circumstances, whatever it is. And yet, if you don't even bother to seek His will in the matter before you ask Him to do your will in the matter if you don't take time to listen for his voice before trying to fight the battles that confront you because you want to handle things your way instead of his way listen then you're not following god at all no you're expecting him to follow you but listen we we serve a god who cannot be defined or controlled and so i'm just telling you until you learn to fully submit your life to him And accept the fact that you were created by him and for him. And that your life is meant to reflect his. It's not the other way around. You're going to constantly struggle with the feeling that maybe God isn't with you. Every time he doesn't appear to be working in your life the way you want him to. And again, it's not that God isn't with you. It's simply that he doesn't answer to you. The presence of God cannot be controlled. The Holy Spirit doesn't submit to us. We submit to him. Jesus isn't following us we're following him John Ortberg once said the biggest difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you listen God is perfectly righteous just and true we're not that much we know Just as he declared in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Which means if we're going to accurately reflect him to lost people in this world, we have to accept who he is, not who we want him to be. Because we were created by him and for him. It's not the other way around. And so as we continue working our way through the book of Revelation, it's important to keep that in mind here because, look, these next two chapters outline the actions of a God who is perfectly righteous, just, and true, whether we like the message or not. And it's a difficult message to be sure as the wrath of God is poured out on this world in full measure, while at the same time he's continually being described throughout the same two chapters as being righteous, just, and true. Of course, it's our responsibility to reflect his righteousness, his justice, and his truth to an entire generation of people today who don't understand anything about the wrath of God because the church has largely refused to teach it, because we don't like it. We don't think it's the way he should be, and it's certainly not how we think we would be. So instead, we've at best suppressed the message about God's righteousness, justice, and truth. And at worst, we've reflected a version of him to this world that we like better, a tamer, more well-behaved version of God that we can control and shape into our own image. Well, Listen, these are life and death messages given by God to John to share with you and me. So that we will not only know what's coming, but share it with this world, as hard as it may be. Why? Because he loves us. And he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. First Timothy 2.4. So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time at Revelation 15. This is going to be a two-part sermon. Part 1 will cover chapter 15 today and, and point 1. And then part 2 and the next two points in the sermon we'll cover next week through chapter 16. And uh, this is our short chapter. Today it's only eight verses, so we're going to go ahead and read through the entire chapter, and then we'll go back and dig into this story a little bit deeper. So let's turn there together, chapter 15, Revelation 15, and uh, read it together. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of god and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished so chapter 15 and 16 outline the pouring out of seven bowls of god's wrath which are described as the last plagues in verse one these final judgments build on and consummate the earlier judgments of the seven seals in chapter six and the trumpets in chapter eight and so whereas the seals destroyed a quarter of the earth and the trumpets destroyed a third of the earth the destruction of the bowls is comprehensive and it is complete and so while these three series of judgments cover the same period leading up to the end each series expands on the one before it so the bowls are an unfolding of the seventh trumpet if you will just as the trumpets are an expansion of the seventh seal and this is john going back and describing god's judgment in more detail, which is something he does throughout the book. Uh, It is, in fact, common in ancient prophetic writings and particularly in Hebrew literature in general, this idea of stating and then going back and restating uh, an event in progressive detail, which is, in part, by the way, why Revelation is so hard for people to understand because it's not a neatly packaged chronology of end-time events. So John jumps forward and backward. And so now John says, with the pouring out of these bowls, the wrath of God is finished. And there are only two words for wrath in biblical Greek, orge, which means anger, which it's also the much more common word used throughout the New Testament for wrath, whereas the ancient Greek word used here for wrath is thumos. It's only used 11 times in the entire New Testament, and 10 of those times are in Revelation. And it refers specifically to a fierce, volatile, passionate anger. In fact, the word heat is associated with this word so this is literally a white hot anger and there are plenty of people who have tried to interpret this wrath of God to mean something else because they want it to mean something else but at the end of the day it means what it says it means this is the white hot burning judgment of God against those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And then John describes those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. These are the martyrs of the tribulation singing the song of redemption that began with Moses and found its completion in the sacrificial death of the lamb. And they sing, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's described as the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb because the Song of Moses, which celebrates, of course, Israel's exodus from Egypt in Exodus 15, is fulfilled in the Song of the Lamb, the great deliverance of the people of God by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And in fact, there are many parallels between Uh, exodus 15 and revelation 15. so the theme of victory in exodus 15 becomes the basis for praise and adoration in the song of the victors in both stories where one of course prefigures the other and god is worthy of glory and honor in both cases because of course his great and marvelous works are righteous just and true in both cases it's the celebration song of those who've been delivered from destruction so For instance, after crossing the Red Sea, the people of Israel stood on the shore and sang with Moses of God's deliverance just as those who have overcome the enemy here in Revelation 15 sing of God's victory in their lives over the enemy who is completely consumed in both cases. Basically, every phrase, by the way, of this hymn here in Revelation is taken from the vocabulary of the Old Testament. There's also evidence this song was a part of the liturgy of the early church in celebration of the final victory in these last days yet to come. And then John sees the heavenly temple or sanctuary open, the temple being more closely defined as the tent of witness, which is another reference to the period of Israel's sojourn in the wilderness in Exodus. And then the seven angels of devastation emerge, and as the angels receive their bowls of wrath, the sanctuary is filled with smoke symbolizing the glory and power of God just as in the old testament where God often revealed his presence by cloud or smoke and just as no one could enter the sanctuary in exodus when the tabernacle was consecrated uh, uh because of the cloud of God's glory so back when they dedicated the temple it was filled with the cloud of his glory no one could enter here in revelation 15 the sanctuary is filled with the smoke from the glory of God John says and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So here we are. The time for intercession has passed. God in his unapproachable glory and power has declared that the end has come. No longer does he stand and knock. Now now he enters to act in sovereign judgment and in terrible wrath yet as all of this is going on god's people are singing about the righteousness justice and truth of god verse 3 just and true are your ways verse 4 for your righteous acts have been revealed in fact these attributes of god are repeated over and over again throughout chapters 15 and 16 because it's the central theme of this part of the story but but what ways exactly are just and true. I mean, what righteous acts have been revealed? Well, again, just look at the the context of the song. It's being sung as the final judgment of God is poured out on the earth. And so this chapter is the precursor for the terrible day of God's wrath poured out on those who have rejected Jesus Christ, which we'll talk about next week in chapter 16 as God exercises his justice and truth the world over. For today, we're going to spend the rest of our time dealing with this aspect of God's character that qualifies him to exercise that justice and truth in the next chapter. It's his righteousness or holiness. Verse 4, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed, okay? God alone is worthy and able to exercise ultimate justice and truth the world over because He alone is holy, righteous, perfect in all of His ways. And because God is righteous, we are commanded to reflect His righteousness as well so that the world will know that He is righteous. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Okay, in Leviticus eleven forty four. He said I am the Lord your God consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. Unless we think that was just an Old Testament commandment or concept or old covenant command Peter repeats it in 1 Peter 1:15 1, and 16 but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written you shall be holy for I'm holy. Okay, we were created by God and for God in part to reflect His righteousness, His holiness in this world. And just as it is the righteousness of God that underscores His authority to exercise justice and truth, it is only when His righteousness is reflected in us that we can effectively express His justice and truth in our own lives toward other people. Right? I'm sure you've heard the quote. Uh, that is it's often attributed to Saint Francis he said preach the gospel at all times when necessary use words it's a great quirt, quote I'm not I'm not sure he actually said that but the point is well taken you can speak all the truth you want but if the way you live your life doesn't actually reflect what you say you believe your ministry to other people won't be very effective because your actions always speak louder than your words right Jesus's sacrifice on the cross was effectual in part because he was perfect. He was perfectly righteous. He was the only one worthy to sacrifice for our sin. And likewise, the truth you speak, the justice you will stand for, will only make an impact in other people's lives if that truth and justice is reflected in how you actually live your life. Which, is, which of course is not a, a biblical topic that gets a lot of press these days because deep down every one of us knows that we fall woefully short of perfect holiness which makes talking about it extremely uncomfortable for most of us. And it's true, right? None of us are perfect this side of eternity. I hear people say all the time, when I talk to people about, about God, about church and they don't go to church or don't believe in God or maybe they do but they haven't been to church in a long time. And, And I'll invite them to come to upcountry and let's say, no, you know, uh, the reason I don't go to church is because it's full of hypocrites. Well, that's like saying the reason I don't go to the gym is because it's full of people who are out of shape. What a ridiculous thing to say. That's why it's there. So, yeah, you're right. The church is full of hypocrites because we've yet to be perfected, which is why we need the church to begin with, to help us to learn to follow Christ, mistakes and all. And so we have a clear command and a clear responsibility to help each other do everything we can to live our lives in a way that accurately reflects the righteousness of Christ, even though we know we won't perfectly achieve that in this lifetime. In fact, it's so important to jesus that he said whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea mark 9 42 which is a metaphor for those who disciple others that that keeps me up at night god help us to teach your word rightly jesus says look if you teach someone else anything less than the whole counsel of god The gospel in its entirety, the parts you like, the parts you don't like. If you add or take away from any part of this message causing others to stumble, it's not only sin, but sin of the gravest order. In fact, teaching any version of my gospel other than the one I'm teaching you is such a serious offense, you'd be better off having a great millstone hung around your neck and then be tossed into the sea. Which, by the way, in ancient Jewish literature, the sea was always considered a place of terror and chaos. It was an obvious reference to hell. And yet, we can be so careless and cavalier today with the gospel, to, teaching our own version of the gospel, one that suits our lifestyle, one that promises everything for us while requiring nothing from us, one that points, uh, paints God as a, a well-mannered, well-behaved, easily controlled, harmless father who loves everyone and overlooks everything in our lives that shouldn't be there. It's an easy gospel, and it feels really good. It's one they would actually even deal with in the early church, a false gospel that, according to Jesus, leads straight to hell, which he goes on to describe in Mark 9. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's a quote from Isaiah 66, 24. I'm I'm pretty sure Jesus' disciples couldn't have been any more uncomfortable than they were listening to him talk about sin and hell and the need for holiness in their lives. And obviously Jesus was using metaphor to describe the problem of sin, which is a matter of the heart, because sin comes from within. And so no matter what it is, listen, if the deepest desires of your heart lead you to sin, then you must forsake those desires, die to yourself, suffer the loss of that passion, and cling to the cross. What is the cross? It is an instrument of suffering and death. And I I think I mentioned this recently in one of the messages. I, I, I am convinced when the biblical writers talk about suffering, I know we tend to think about persecution, and certainly persecution was a reality for them. But when they talk about suffering for the sake of Christ, I believe they're most often recalling the things they had to cut out of their own lives and give up. They're talking about dying to themselves so they could better devote themselves to Christ and his message without the former distractions of life. Ruling their lives because if you look at what they say when they talk about persecution most of the time uh, They're like, okay Bring it For me to live as Christ and to die is gain Go ahead and kill me peter said hey hey fellas. Why don't you just turn me upside down? While you're at it Go ahead. I, I get to go home and be with jesus When they talk about suffering most of the time what they're talking about Was having to die to themselves Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in his letter to the church at Philippi. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Why would you do that, Paul? In order that I may gain Christ. Philippians 3, 4 through 8. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. What things? Paul, what, what things have you suffered the loss of? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You understand what he's saying? Paul had pedigree. I had status. I had influence. I had power. I had respect. I had experience. And this is a big one. Paul had the moral high ground, according to the world. You understand what he's saying here? He's not talking about persecution, he was certainly persecuted. But here he's not talking about suffering because of persecution. He's talking about the exact process that Jesus just described to his disciples that we just read. This is Paul deliberately and painfully cutting everything out of his life that he once held dear in order that he might gain Christ. And make no mistake about it, it was a tremendous cause of suffering in Paul's life. It's Precisely why we don't like talking about righteousness. Holiness, because it inevitably necessitates a degree of suffering on our part when we deal with our own sin, sometimes a great degree of suffering. And of course, nobody likes to suffer. And so instead, we simply avoid the issue of sin and holiness until it becomes a non-issue for many professing believers today, even though Jesus talked more about hell than any other person in the entire Bible, far more, in fact, than he ever talked about heaven. Yet somewhere along the way, In much of the modern church, at least, we've attached ourselves to the idea that we can gain Christ without giving up anything else. Despite the fact that Jesus and the biblical writers were emphatic about everything, we would have to suffer the loss of just to follow Jesus. I mean, just read the last third of Luke 14. By the way, just so you understand, there's nothing inherently inside of you that makes you holy. You know that, right? Only Jesus Christ can make you holy. There's nothing inside of you that can make you holy, but there is plenty inside of you that can keep you from being made holy. So Jesus says, whatever it is, it's better to suffer the loss of something near and dear to your heart than to take it with you into hell, which is what clinging to the cross looks like. It's suffering the loss of everything that keeps the Spirit of Christ from changing you from the inside out. Listen, the, the world, And many elements of the modern church that are worldly will tell you, you don't have to give up anything in order to gain Christ. You can do and say and believe virtually anything you want to, and it doesn't matter as long as you also believe in Jesus, then you can still be a Christian and live any way that you want to. It's actually, it's a form of relativism. Andrew Womack said, one of the things I've learned is that many Christians never let the Bible get in the way of what they believe. Relativism: What's right for me is right for me. What's right for you is right for you. There are no absolutes. Everything is relative. It's up for interpretation. Of course, if you challenge that assertion at all, you're immediately labeled as an intolerant religious bigot because the world believes it has the moral high ground over the church today. How many times do we hear people in uh, social media or broadcast media saying that those of us who cling to a biblically orthodox Christianity are going to end up on the wrong side of history? If you don't celebrate and promote homosexuality, if you don't champion abortion, if you don't affirm gender neutrality, in short, if you don't approve of any and all behavior that people choose to participate in, regardless of what the Bible actually teaches us about that behavior and the human heart that it comes from, then you are going to end up on the wrong side of history. I hear it over and over and over again. Well, listen, I'd rather suffer the loss of being on the right side of history than to go to hell because I was too afraid to confront my own sin. No, no, what we need is to be honest with ourselves and with each other about what Jesus actually taught, that there are indeed changes that must occur in the life of every human being who would ever choose to follow Jesus Christ. You see, his grace in our lives demands a response and that response is to be holy to live righteously why because he is righteous and yet again righteousness holiness it's unachievable without God the apostle Paul explains but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and prophets bear witness to it the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe his righteousness in us Romans three twenty one and 22 see, he's, he's not just righteous he's the source of all righteousness all holiness so much so that Luke 149 says holy is his name and so next week we're gonna dig into this idea that everything God does is just and true even when we don't like it or agree with what he's doing but listen we cannot make the case that God is just or true without first establishing that God is righteous J.I. Packer said, God's wrath is his righteousness reacting against unrighteousness. You see, if Jesus wasn't perfectly righteous, holy, then he could not have paid for our sins. But he did, because he was. And it is in that gospel that his righteousness is revealed to the world, first through him, and now through you and me. The Apostle Paul, referring to the gospel, he said it this way, for in it, He's talking about the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's you and me, Romans 1.17. So the righteousness of Christ is revealed to the world through his death on the cross that atoned for our sins and is now continually being revealed through our faith in that same gospel and the evidence of it in our lives. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. That's his righteousness imparted to us through Christ. If you read that whole passage in the original Greek, the righteousness of God is specifically referring to here his holiness and his justice. Can you see how important it is that our lives are a true reflection of who God really is? Not so much maybe who we'd like for him to be. Because the evidence to the rest of the world that God is righteous is His righteousness in us. The Spirit of Christ at work in us. And so we were created by God and for God in order to be His reflection, His representation to those who are still lost. But if your idea, your view of God is based more on your own preferences than it is on His Word and what His Word says about who He is, well, then when you tell people about Jesus, what they're going to see is more of you and less of him. Especially if your life doesn't resemble his at all. Which means we have to accept who his word says he is, righteous, just, and true. Even when we don't like the way he expresses that righteousness, justice, and truth in this world. Even when he doesn't do things the way we want him to. Because he's not a tame easily explainable, controllable, well-behaved God that we can call on to do what we want, when we want it, and how we want it. No, He is the terrifyingly powerful, eternally existent, infinitely knowing, undefinable, and uncontrollable creator of the universe, perfectly righteous, just, and true. Let's pray.